recently started rereading the, the novel by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. It's a wonderful book, and one of my favorite scenes in the book so far is Dickens' description of this little scene that occurs outside a wine shop in Paris, France. That's one of the, the two cities, of course. And France in this time period, this is before the revolution, he's trying to paint a picture of poverty and inequality and oppression. And in the midst of that dark and gloomy kind of atmosphere where hunger is all pervasive, there's uh, in front of this wine shop, a cask of wine which is being delivered breaks open by accident there in the street. And instantly the, the folks who had all been kind of groveling in their huts, you know, trying to to make a, a few meager morsels, uh, bring them t through to the next day, all come out into the street and there's this impromptu party. People are desperately trying to dam up the wine that's running away, uh, you know, lick it up with their hands, even bend down to, to lick it off the stones. People are kind of arm in arm dancing around in the middle of the streets. And all of this is occurring because of this one cask of wine broken open in the middle of the street. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And it speaks to how important wine is culturally, uh, both now and always has been, but especially in the past. It was like the, the glue that held uh, the, the party or even society together. It was kind of like a natural sacrament. People would gather together to drink. And the, the joy of, of drinking, <laughs> in moderation, I hope, would, would allow them to, to, to dwell with each other in charity, maybe in a way that they, they would have found much harder uh, if they were sober. And, and that's something that it was an essential part of parties in, in the Lord's day, uh, just, just as they, it has always been. But there's something much more going on here than the Lord simply kind of uh, literally giving life to or being the life of the party. Uh, there's, there's a lot more, in fact. And we, we miss a little bit of it because of words that are left out from the very beginning of the gospel. And I think they're left out because they seem out of context or confusing. Uh, but in the, the lectionary we begin, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, etc., etc. But in the Gospel of John, if you were to look it up in, in John chapter uh, 2, you would see on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now this is interesting because John it hasn't we don't know exactly what happened yesterday uh, on the second day, presumably, or what happened on the first day. And it's also confusing because the, what happened directly previous happened in, uh, in Judea, where the Lord was baptized, and this occurs in Galilee. So if, unless the Lord had teleported, the, the, he wouldn't have made it there from one day to the next. It would have been a week ago or, or perhaps even years ago, not yesterday. So John isn't giving us simply a historical account, uh, one day, two days, three days. The third day means something theological. So we're, we're, we ought to pay attention uh, to that the, on the third day. Now, if we read, the, the, read backwards in the gospel, if you will, this, on the second day, is the story of the baptism of the Lord and the calling of the apostles uh, with John the Baptist there by the side of the Jordan River. And then on the first day in John's story is the witness of John the Baptist, which is led into, uh, with, uh, without any kind of transition seamlessly, by that great, beautiful prologue of John's gospel, which we hear every year uh, at the Mass during the day on Christmas morning. In the beginning it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so on. To, and the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So here we have a, a sequence of days. 
On the first day, we hear quite a bit about light and darkness. And on the second day, we hear quite a bit about water through the baptism in the Jordan. And then on the third day, we hear about wine. And that should ring a bell for us if we know, well, the first chapter of the Bible. In Genesis, on the first day, the Lord spoke, let there be light, and there was light, and the light and the darkness. And then John tells us, the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. That was the first day. On the second day, the Lord separated the waters that were under the heavens from the waters above the heavens. And here again, we hear of water, the Lord dividing the waters and creating the heavens. And there, when the Lord was baptized, the heavens were opened, and the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. And then on the third day, in the beginning, the Lord separated the earth from the waters and created the dry land, and then he commanded it to bring forth trees and grass and fruit-bearing trees and presumably vines of every kind, making, yes, grapes and, yes, grapes for wine. This on the third day. And on the third day, there was the wedding at Cana in Galilee, when the Lord changed the water into wine. So John is telling us something very particular with this, uh, this sequence of days which he gives us, that the Lord, that Jesus Christ, the man who was invited to this wedding, there a man among all other men, was God, was that word that was in the beginning with God the word through whom all things were made, who in the beginning spoke, and so it was. Let there be light, and there was light. That's why this is such a profound gospel story, and why at the end it says, Jesus did this as the beginning of his signs in Cana at Galilee, and so revealed his glory. The Lord revealed who he was, his glory, the glory of God in this, uh, this wonderful miracle of wine, this super abundant miracle. Uh, there's about 180 gallons or about 2,000 glasses involved. So the Lord is trying to send a very clear message that he is God and that he is a generous God who wants to shower his blessings, not abundantly, but overabundantly on the creation that he has made. We have this interesting dialogue in the middle of the gospel the, the mother of Jesus, uh, Mary, the Blessed Virgin, says to him, they have no wine. And to this very simple four-word statement, Jesus res- responded, woman, how does your co- concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. Isn't that a confusing response to make to this simple request, you know, or even just a statement, they have no wine? And to that, the Lord says, my hour has not yet come. What do we make of that? Well, the Lord knows what is involved here. He knows that they have no wine is also a theological statement because wine means so much more than simply something to drink. It means that which gives joy. It really stands for the grace of God. And when Mary says they have no wine, she's making a statement which is as true today as it was at that party. They have no wine. Their sins have separated them from you, O Lord, and they have no joy. The joy that wine gives, the blessedness of union with God, the friendship with God that is so much better than any drink, they have none of it. 
And so the Lord's response makes perfect sense then. My hour has not yet come. It is not yet time for him to give his life for our salvation, but yet he will give us this sign of who he is. And so he revealed his glory and changed the water into wine. What does this mean for us today? I think it means something, uh, it can tell us two things that are, that are very important. Firstly, that there's, there's no neutral stance to God. When the Lord reveals his glory, the, the response is either belief or, or crucifixion. Because the Lord says at the end of the gospel, or John tells us, his disciples began to believe in him. To believe what? Uh, presumably that he is who John tells us he is, that he is the Lord God. But of course, if you don't believe that, like the Jews, that would be blasphemy to say that a, a man was also God. And that's why the Lord knows that this leads to his hour, by which he means the hour of his cross. And for us today, just like them, there's no neutral stance between us and the Lord. Either we're for him or against him. Either we love him with our whole heart and give him our lives, or we join that crowd that cries, crucify him, crucify him. And the second thing it tells us is how important it is uh, for us to turn to Mary in our every need. Because here, uh, the Lord is obedient to, to her request. We hear in the, uh, the Gospel of Luke that when the Lord went, went back to Nazareth with Mary after his visit to the temple at age 12, he was obedient to them, uh, to, to, to Joseph and to Mary. And it, it seems as an adult, the Lord is, is still obedient to Mary. Here he begins his whole public life. He, he enters the way, that the straight road to the cross that will lead to his own suffering and death because of a simple request from his mother. And so today we too can turn to Mary in our every need and ask her to intercede for us because through her came every grace to the world. This little dialogue uh, that occurs here, uh, they have no wine, and so the Lord pours himself out so generously in the creation of this, uh, this wine from water. Did not the Lord come into the world through Mary in the first time, and he will always come to us when we ask uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary again through Mary's prayers. And so all, all the graces we receive we can receive through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, and we have this uh, beautiful paradigm of that in the gospel here. The Lord enters into the path to his cross, uh, gives up his own life through the intercession of, of Mary. And when his side was pierced on the cross and he poured forth water and blood from his side, John wants us to remember this request of the Blessed Virgin Mary when we read that, that the water and the wine poured, or the water and the blood poured forth from his side, recall to our minds this water and this wine, because his blood is drink indeed, and his flesh is food indeed. And his blood is a wine that will never run dry. His pierced side poured out blood once, but it pours it out still in the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the Eucharist, and, and unlike that cask that broke on the streets in, in the novel uh, in, of Charles Dickens, the, the wine that flows from the side of Christ will never run dry. That party uh, which began uh, at the cross and the resurrection and the Lord's Last Supper, that Last Supper still goes on here today 
and will for all eternity, and that wine will, will never run dry. Not 180 gallons, but an infinite supply of the choicest of drinks, the Lord's own blood by which he desires to join us inseparably to himself. And let us always give thanks to the Lord for that greatest of gifts.